This is Mike Balaban of Bammer and Me. Uh, today I'm with a longtime friend, Andy Tobias. We've known each other decades. Uh, I recall being a guest at a couple of brunches he hosted here in his Upper West Side apartment where we're conducting this interview, in fact, in the late 70s and early 1980s, as well as at his annual lobster bake out on Fire Island in subsequent summers. I've always admired Andy's commitment to the causes that he champions, and I'm really grateful he agreed to be one of the founding members of Bammer.co's board a few years ago. And then finally, uh, thank you, Andy, for agreeing to do this interview. My pleasure. Thank you. Good to see you again. Same here. Let's start right at the beginning. You've got a, a fascinating life, not least for the different things that you are very active in that might not necessarily seem that they would go together, but somehow you make that happen. Um, what kind of upbringing did you have? And you know, how did your family life and your childhood spur you onto the path of political and civil rights activism you've tried the past several decades? Well, I uh, made a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant choice of parents and um, count my aggressive little atheist blessings to this day that I had such wonderful parents and that things have worked out so well. Um, I was a nuclear family, two boys, my older brother, almost four years older. Uh, my dad, who was kind of like Don Draper, if you've seen Mad Men, it was, he wasn't literally the uh, model for it, but that was our life, uh, except with all with none of the womanizing and none of the alcohol. And growing up, my parents kept telling me I was the best little boy in the world, and I kind of got the sense I was supposed to do everything right and be obedient. I was a terrible goody-goody two-shoes in, in elementary school and high school. And, uh, we also, you know, were Jewish, and we uh, lived a very, uh, not wealthy, but very comfortable upper-middle-class kind of thing kind of like Don Draper, again, for those who have seen Mad Men. And uh, so it always made me uncomfortable that when my parents were out, we had uh, somebody who was a, you know, would cook me dinner who was African-American. And, you know, why I'm 12. Why is the person having to, you know, and um, and just the everything about social justice and growing up in the in the 60s, certainly in college and, and high school. My high school algebra teacher was Bob Moses, who went um, left the school in 1961 to found uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and, uh, in Mississippi and to dream up the Mississippi Freedom Caucus. You know, there was Martin Luther King Jr. and there was all these folks. And so between Bob Moses and the sense that, I mean, what I knew about the Holocaust and all these things, uh, even though I was never bar mitzvah, I speak no, I've never been to Israel. I mean, I'm a terrible Jew. But it all comes down to one word, which I um, actually didn't learn until a lot later. But you know the word tikkun, T-I-K-K-U-N? No? Huh. Listen to this. I'm not very good Jew either. Yeah, you're a terrible, you're a worse Jew than I am. Oh, my God, Mike. Seriously. All right. Well, this is really important. Tikkun olam, apparently. I mean, I can't I speak no Hebrew, but it means to heal the world. And this is our obligation. My parents never actually told me about that, but my mom was, she wasn't allowed to work because my father was way too much of a, you know, loved woman, uh, my mother, way too much to allow her to work because back then, you know, a sign yeah, of respect for women. demeaning, right? Yeah, you know, so, I mean, uh, again, it was like Mad Men. It was, I, was, I grew up in the 50s and then I went off to college in the, in the late, in the mid, late 60s. Um, so my mom, who actually would have loved to, she, she wanted to, to be mayor of New York someday, and we all laughed because women, of course, couldn't be mayor and so on and so forth. But she did a lot of charity work. And uh, in our household, there was a, genu a general concern for the well-being of the world and all the starving children in China and all that kind of stuff and waste not, want not. And they were children of the Depression. So anyway, I think the sense of social justice and the sense of fairness and how come we're so lucky and most of the world and much of the country is... Indeed, many of the people just living a few blocks north of us in Harlem who have to come and clean our floors and stuff. There's something wasn't right about this. You know, listen to you, two thoughts run to my mind. One is the similarities in our backgrounds. I mean, I may have been raised on a cattle ranch in the middle of nowhere by a renegade Jewish father and mother who ran off. But I had the same upbringing of you're supposed to be perfect and get all A's and do everything right and and the less fortunate, you know, need to be taken care of. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I note is uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Kevin Jennings. Uh, I interviewed Kevin uh, two months ago in his home 
And uh, Kevin has the diametrically opposite upbringing from you and me, you know, Baptist preacher's son, homophobic preacher. Yep. Uh, in poverty, he calls himself trailer trash. Right. Um, and yet Kevin was imbued with a sense of social justice by his mother from the earliest age. Yep. So it's just really interesting how the same values, some of it may have to do with the times as much as it is how we're raised. Uh, but in any event, we're, we're all here together, sharing the same goals. Indeed. Um, you know, you authored what I believe was the first coming out story to depict an upper middle class guy who just happened to be gay. The best little boy in the world. It was under the pseudonym at the time of, of John Reed, because you couldn't use your name. In fact, you hadn't even told your parents when you were writing it. Right. Um, I was an undergraduate at Brown in 72 or 73 when I happened to read an excerpt from it in New York Magazine. And, you know, I was hiding from myself, certainly from the world. Yeah. And I saw this and I recognized myself in, in well, you. Well. And um, I ordered the book on the sly through the Brown Bookstore <laughs> and went and picked it up, make sure nobody saw me getting and read the whole thing, devoured it. I don't remember what happened after that. It was a few more years before I dealt with and resolved the whole idea of accepting that I was gay. But, um, you know, how did you become a contributor to New York Magazine at such a young age and establish the connections that presumably helped you lead to having your memoir excerpted there? And more amazingly, how did you write that book while you're painting a Harvard MBA if, if Wikipedia was correct? I mean, that information. Well, a lot of questions there. But, uh, but the first thing is, we are so different. I mean, I knew when I was 10, I was a homosexual. And I could tell you that story or it's in the, in the book and all that stuff. But And you didn't... Even after reading this excerpt from New York Magazine and Brown and all of a sudden, you didn't. Don't, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I knew, but I wouldn't admit. All right, okay, because of that best little boy in the world denial. Uh, okay. Go ahead. Well, I, I mean, I. It was an axiom of my existence that no one would ever know. You know, I, uh, I was so afraid I might talk in my sleep or something. No one would ever know, but I knew um, from age ten on. It took me only thirteen years, which is a long time when you're ten. Uh, to to finally come out, but anyway, so um, the New York Magazine stuff. Um, I went to in college. Uh, I was in love with two of my roommates. One of whom went on to be mayor of Cincinnati, and we're still friends. And uh, another went on to be dean of students at the University of British Columbia. I was maddening up with him, um, and so they were both terrific. Couldn't tell them, um, but uh, so. It, Ostensibly, I majored in Slavic languages and literatures, which means reading War and Peace in English in the trot or the, you know, the cliff notes, the little, you know, because I way too long a book to actually read. What I really measured in was the student businesses called Harvard Student Agencies. And I ran the Let's Go Student Guide to Europe, which was enormous fun. And, we used to buy that. I remember that. Yeah, sure. Well, and you had Brown Student Agencies right. and Ira Magaziner right. uh, was the head of it. Um, and now his son is running for... Rose Scholar, friends of Bill and Hillary, yeah, you know. Uh, all this stuff. Right. So I, I had so much fun doing that. And right out of college, I went to work for a company called National Student Marketing Corporation, which was, um, at the time, it was kind of on the front page of all the papers. And the stock went from 6 to 140 in 18 months. And with six months to go before I could exercise my stock options and would be a, a rich 21-year-old, it turned out that the creative accounting that the company was practicing was so creative. I mean, back then you were supposed to, if you weren't doing creative accounting, people, Wall Street was not interested. I mean, you're, you're missing something. You've got to, come on, get with the program. You, you know, it's, this is 1969. You've got to be. But it was so creative that uh, the president of the company, an old, old guy, he was 32. He was the grand old man of the company. He was 32. He went to jail. Someone from Pete Marwick Mitchell has, there used to be eight big accounting firms, and this was one of them. Usually the accounts don't go to jail, but someone from Pete Marwick went to jail. And White and Case would today be a much bigger law firm if they hadn't been, uh, I mean, it's a pretty big law firm anyway, but back then it was, you know, the top of the heap in terms of prestige. And one of its people didn't go to jail, but had to go back to England and all that. So I um, wound up writing a book about it. So, so Best Little Boy wasn't your first book? No, no, no. Oh, gosh. I had, you know, I'm a <laughs> widely published author by the age of 24. Um, no, I had a little uh, uh, book that I did with the roommate I was in love with and another roommate called The Ivy League Guidebook. And it was, 
just, it was so square, just as the world was becoming so hip. I mean, it was so not Woodstock. It was so not smoking weed. So you and predated, was it Lisa Bernstein? Did the pre- Lisa Bernback is the preppy Bernbeck handbook. Is Lisa's a great friend of mine. The preppy, uh, the preppy guy? Preppy. Yeah, but hers was funny, and, mm-hmm. and she, she's terrific. No, the Ivy League guidebook was one chapter on each of the eight schools, and then another chapter. I, there was one one cool chapter. The only chapter that the editor of the book, the, you know, the adult, was interested in was the, that um, our third author, Cap Weinberger Jr., who was actually the son of the Secretary of Defense, uh, was about weed and getting stoned. Well, Arne and I knew nothing about such things. And, and, you know, we were writing about Brown and each of the schools and all that stuff. Anyway, the book came out. It was an oversized book with cartoons and pictures and stuff like that. It was a terrible optical illusion, and it looked like the Ivy League cookbook instead of the Ivy League guidebook. Anyway, so that was a book. And then I wrote a book about this um, this crazy ride I had with this company where the stock went for six to 140 and the, everybody went to jail except me and all that kind of stuff. And um, New York Magazine called and put me on the cover, 10 pages, uh, inside of a bubble about to burst. Uh, actually, by the time all that happened, I was just starting business school. And they said, when you graduate business school, you have to come work for us. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? First of all, I don't know anything about writing. I'm not a writer. I'm a little business ty- tycoon. I lost, a, you know, Harvard Student Agency's lost a fortune. I mean, my little part didn't, but and, and National Student Marketing went uh, bankrupt. So surely I'm, uh, you know, slated for big then, corporate. Yes, I'm the next, uh, you know, <laughs> the next Jack Welch uh, of GE or something. Plus, who makes a job offer 18 months in advance? What are you talking about? But it was flattering. And I'm such a bad student. And so, uh, I mean, I don't know ADD or any of that, but I would just, both in college and in business school, I'd spend so much time sitting in class kind of squeezing the professor's head between my thumb and my forefinger, and I just couldn't pay attention. So I would, in college, I would, after class, run up to Harvard Student Agencies to work on Let's Go and, you know, see how many orders came in and all that. And in business school, um, I wound up writing some more articles for New York Magazine, which was so much more fun than sitting there reading the cases and all that. And so I got to know them a little bit better. When the professor said, well, why are you here? Because, you know, you've had this amazing, the book had just come out the week I um, I said, oh, I'm here to learn how to do it right. That wasn't why I was there. I was there to have something respectable to do while I came out. I finally came out of the closet because it was the summer just before business school started that I finally, I broke out of my shell with the assistance of certain mind-altering substances, I guess. I was going to say, uh, you're five years ahead of me and you were talking about missing the whole marijuana boom, but I came into college in 1970 and that was what everybody was doing. So you finally got it in grad school. Well, I'm not a big marijuana guy. I mean, a little bit, but uh, there were other things. But uh, anyway, I finally came out in the summer of 1970 and basically have never looked back. It was so thrilling and so amazing and uh, started making friendships that I have to this day. So as I was finishing business school, I realized this is crazy. There's this whole world that, you know, millions of people know about, the gay people know, and a few enlightened, you know, but almost nobody knows about. And people have these stereotypes. They figure the hairdresser is gay and this and that. And by the way, God bless the hairdressers and God bless the... um, I always say no disrespect to those who fit the stereotypes. Yeah, definitely no. I mean, in fact, at Stonewall, it wasn't the, you know, the preppies who who had the courage to, you know. So um, I wanted to write a book to tell straight people this, you know, what the real world was like. I didn't think any gay people would read it. Why would they read it? I don't know anything about, you know, I've been doing this for 18 months. I'm not exactly a pro. And in the sex department, I was definitely not a pro. I mean, I'm, you know, it's, um, I wrote the book just as I was, at the end of the business school, uh, it turned out nobody wanted me to run their corporation. Uh, but New York Magazine still wanted me to, to come write for them. And Fortune Magazine, which was the real prestigious magazine back then, it was great. They made an offer, but thankfully... I figured, you know, there's something about New York Magazine. They've been so good to me and all that. So I'm going to try it. And um, I haven't worked an honest day in my life ever since. So um, I wrote for them. And I told my editor, 
just before I started, I said, look, there's something I uh, want to tell you. We were having our a lunch, and I was sweating bullets telling him this. We had already developed a good rapport, but I said, I'm gay, and I think, you know, probably under a pen name, but I'm going to want to write some things about that. Uh, is that okay? And he looked pretty uncomfortable, but he's a, he was a wonderful man, and he said, okay, no problem, and all that stuff. And So anyway, I wrote the book. And uh, so just, you didn't write it while you were at Harvard. It was after you. The, the first chapter or two I wrote uh, just as business school was ending. And then I spent that summer between business school and um, starting to work at New York Magazine. And uh, the day after Labor Day, that summer, I wrote Best Little Boy in the World. Or I mean, the first chapter was already written. You read the excerpt when you were in Brown. Yeah. My parents, who I still had not told, a, a book was out. It was reviewed in the New York Times. It was under a pen name. But my parents, of course, subscribed to New York Magazine. They were so proud that their son, all at 25 years old, you know, was some, you know, sometimes he'd have his uh, name on the cover of New York Magazine and all this kind of stuff. And I will never know. I, th I think they never read the excerpt. And I think it's possible either of them or both of them might have kind of chosen not to read the excerpt. Not, not knowing it was you at the time. Or well, they knowing. definitely didn't know it was me. Right. I mean, they didn't know it was gay, and they didn't know the right. pen name and all that stuff. It was possible they just missed it that week. Right. Or it's possible they just paged through, and that one wasn't of interest or something. But now that I think about it, it's possible that they kind of saw it, and on some level, some subconscious level, didn't want to read it. Because I got calls. I got a call from a high school classmate who said, hey, congratulations on, on this thing. I said, what are you talking about? Well, the, the article, I said, Richard, how did how did you know that was me? Oh, please, your style's unmistakable. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> and um, so they, they still didn't know. It took it was four years after the book came out before I finally told them. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of your question. No, no, that's fine. So you basically have made a career out of writing, but you've intertwined that with your interest in business and finance. So if you kind of describe how the next couple of decades, how you occupied it with that, but also the spinoff that got you into the Democratic Party politics. I'm kind of wondering how that all fits yeah. together. Well, so my first day uh, after that famous summer when I when I was writing the book, I was supposed to start at New York Magazine the day after Labor Day. And so I spent the summer writing the book and having a wonderful summer. And then I show up and I'm thinking, what should I get there? What should I wear? Should I get there at eight? No, I think magazines and New York is different from business, and it's cool. I guess I'll get I'll get there at nine, and I'll probably still be pretty early. I get there at nine. There are a few people in the office, not many, and I'm thinking, where should I sit? If I should sit, and what should I do? Until my the guy that I had that lunch with told him I was gay and all stuff. What, what should I do? I found a yellow pad and I sat in some, everyone was very nice to me. He said, oh, you can sit here, there, well, you know. And now it's 9.30 and where is Shelly? Where's Sheldon Zelaznik, this wonderful man? Now it's 10, where's Shelly? At 11 o'clock, Sheldon Zelaznik, may he rest in peace, comes in. He was kind of a number, he ran the place basically. Clay Felker was the big famous editor, it was wonderful. Uh, Shelly was such a mensch. I said, Shelly, I'm here, I'm here. I'm, I didn't know what to do, so I haven't really gotten anything accomplished. And he looks at me like I'm from another planet, he's, and he puts up his hand, you know, calm down, calm down. He hangs up his raincoat. I'll never forget this. This is a long time ago. This is 1972. <laughs> and he hangs up his raincoat, sits down. I'm sitting at the little chair by his desk. He starts, he hasn't said a word. I haven't said a word except to feel so guilty. I have a comp two hours. I mean, I don't know if they're paying me, you know, I think it was $15,000 a year. So that comes out to whatever it comes out to. I hadn't done anything. I was made some lists of possible articles or something, but I didn't know that I was doing the right thing. Um, and he goes, he's going through his calendar and he says, now remember, this is the day after Labor Day. So it's a Tuesday morning at 11 o'clock. He says, what are you doing Thursday for, for lunch? <laughs> I looked at him and said, what am I doing Thursday? I work for you. I'm doing whatever you tell me to do. What are you talking about? He said, all right, well, let's have lunch on Thursday, and we'll talk about what your first article should be. And my, you know, okay, yeah, but what am I supposed to do between now and then? 
So <laughs> he looked at me. He said, I don't know, dear boy. I mean, don't, haven't you just moved here? Don't you want to buy some furniture or something? I'll see you uh, Thursday for lunch. The point being, the difference between my little exposure to the business world and then the world of magazine writing and the world of that they opened up to me was quite a difference. And I've been so fortunate. I've been my own boss basically ever since. I, in fact, after a couple of years with them, I said, look, I feel so guilty that I'm not getting enough done. Instead of paying me a month, uh, you know, a yearly salary, could you pay me by the, you know, if it's a regular story, 1500 bucks, if it's a cover story, 2500 if it's a little sidebar, 750 something like that. I said, I did the math. I think it's going to come out the exact same for you. I'm not looking for a raise, but I'll be motivated. The guilt will go away. I'll be motivated by the carrot instead of the stick. And I said, okay, that's fine. And it was such a life lesson because, in fact, I didn't make any, I might have made $1,000 more or something. But, oh my God, I was so much happier because I wasn't guilty all the time that I wasn't getting enough done. And I was doing it because I wanted to and because maybe I'll make a little bit more money. So I loved it. And I kept writing, got some book offers, and, and one thing led to another. And then there was the software. There's a new thing called personal computers. Probably wouldn't catch on, but still. So I had my, before Quicken, there was my software, which was called Managing Your Money. At first, it was going to be for the Atari, but they decided, no, IBM is supposed to be coming out with a personal computer. Let's do it for the IBM. I had no idea what it was going to be. And of course, I can't program my way out of a paper bag. But I couldn't ask for things, really smart programmers. And I said, well, could it do this? Well, that might be hard, but we could try. And well, then could it do that? It wound up doing everything. It was the only computer software you'd ever need <laughs> uh, back then. To do? Well, it did. Your, kept track of your budgets and your checkbooks and your stocks and your bonds, but it also told you how much life insurance you need and what it should cost and how long you would live. And it, it was funny. And we built in a word processor because back then there was, you know, we uh, there wasn't multitasking and all that stuff. So I had a word processor, had a calculator. Uh, so really kind of personal financial management. Everything. And it was so much fun. I would go give these demos in Las Vegas at the computer shows and stuff. I've been so lucky to have so many chapters that are so fun. So anyway, that was enormous fun. And for five years, it was in the top 10 of personal software, Knockwood, which is, you know, I don't have a view, but I, you know, am living in New York. Well, you know, my memory of whenever I've read your writings right up to your blog days, you have a wry sense of humor that permeates what you put out. And I I have a feeling that probably really helped a lot of people read it because it's kind of dry material if you think about it, right? Well, first of all, thank you. Mm -hmm. And second, that, I mean, to the extent I've been successful, this is the stuff in my investment guide the only investment guide you'll ever need, which is a little embarrassing because I have to update it every five or six years when they invent the internet or cryptocurrency or something. But it's done you know, really, really well. But it's not because there are any amazing insights in it. It's because exactly what you say, it's kind of dry. And my job is to try to make it fun and motivating so that people actually read it. There are only a few basic things you need to know but to get people to internalize those things. So anyway, the software was super fun and there were jokes in it. And it, it, the section where you have your net worth at the end of the, you know, anytime you want, you can see what it all totals to. And it would give these uh, snide comments about how much it really, you know, you think you're a big shot, you got $67,000 actually. And then they're, if you're worth your weight in gold, that's like two grams or something. Or, you know, the old expression about if I had a nickel for every time you left the screen door open or whatever, I had so much fun with that software, and it was a great chapter of my life. Uh, but you asked how the politics got involved. None of this was planned. I got involved in a thing called Renaissance Weekend, which was between Christmas and New Year's. Did that start before the Clintons, or was it? I mean, it was, yes, was that, well, that down as not before they were born, but yes. So Phil, Carolina, right? Phil and Linda later. I got a letter one day from Phil later, back in the days of typewriters and stuff. Uh, saying, hey, so um, uh, I run Sea Pines Plantation, and Linda and I, you know, we're not big, crazy, drinking and dancing all night and all that around New Year's. So we thought, wouldn't it be fun? I got used to this place. Why don't we have uh, some families get together, we'll play touch football on the beach? And um, we did it last year, and we'd like you to come this year. And I'm thinking, well, I obviously can't do that. 
I mean, A, I don't have a family. B, the only thing more terrifying to me than touch football is real football or baseball. Baseball, basically, is even more terrifying. I mean, playing it, watching it is just boring, but playing it. So I can't do that. I'm gay, and they don't know this. Uh, Our mutual friend did, but, oh, and I forgot to say, and he said, and it's so great, we had a, this time, we had a Supreme Court justice, and we had a governor, uh, or two governors, and and an astronaut, and so on, and you'll have a great thing. Oh, my God, even if I like touch football, (laughs) and even if I had kids, you know, and and were straight, I can't be in a group like this. I'm totally, like, you know, two orders of magnitude below this level of woe. So, but I couldn't write that in return. So I wrote back, well, you know, thank you, I'm very flattered, and and, um, sounds wonderful, but of course I'm incredibly busy and important, or whatever, you know, whatever (laughs) stupid thing. I made some excuse, you know, I had other plans. And I didn't do it. And then the next year, I got this letter again. And I, again, I thank you so much. I did it. The year after that, I got the letter and I called our mutual friend, who in fact is not a Supreme Court justice. And I used to beat him at squash, uh, not all the time, but and he's real smart. He's wonderful. Oh my God, what a great friend. I just saw him last week. And he's done amazing things in his life. But actually, I can hold my own with him. I'm as smart as he is, you know. So I called him. And I said, look, I keep getting these letters from Phil. And I, you know, I can't, I'm gay, and you know, but I can't do this. You know, could I come as your third child? He, he's two days older than I am. Because he had uh, Jessica, age two, and Rebecca, age one, and me, age 38, or something like that at the time. He said, yes, that'd be great. So I started to go, and I met, you know, Supreme Court justice and some ex-governors and all that stuff. And I met a sitting governor from a state that, frankly, it's such a weird, I've always heard of Arkansas, but where would it be? I mean, presumably next to Kansas, right? Because it's spelled that way. But it's a southern state, but it's just like Mississippi. Not really. I don't know where it is. And I know it's not a very important state. By the way, of course, the things I'm saying are horrible, and I don't <laughs> for a minute actually mean this, but this is sort of my... Um, so I got to know this very young governor, not tremendously well, and his very pretty wife, by the way, this blonde. You know, don't don't count out just because she's a woman and she's blonde. That, that, you know, and she, she could be amount to something. And for anybody who's not getting it, it's Hillary and Bill Clinton. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so in 1988... There was some talk of his wanting to run for president, and he gave the gave the keynote speech at the convention in '88, and it was way too long, and it was embarrassingly too long, and famously too long, and all this kind of stuff. He went on the Tonight Show the next night, I think, with Johnny Carson or somebody, and they all made fun of it, so he could turn it around, and you know. But I'm thinking, but this is kind of ridiculous. I mean, he's brilliant. He's a road scholar. He's never president. Well, he couldn't. And then, so in 92, I probably was the fall of 91. I'm sitting in short pants in Miami with, you know, uh, haven't shaved and I'm a writer. So I probably got up at 1030 in the morning or whatever. And the phone rings and Andy spill. Bill Clinton. Uh, I'm going to announce next week that I'm running for president. And I wanted you to know first thinking, what? First of all, running for president? Are you crazy? I mean, you're really going to do this? I didn't say that loud, but... And second, you're calling me? If you're calling me, you've got to be calling 500 other people. And I now understand, yes, but actually it was 2,500 people he was calling. And Bill remembers them all by name. That's the thing, and it's not a parlor trick. He is so extraordinary. Right. Actually, as we're talking, he's... Well, I think he's going to be fine, but apparently right. he's in the hospital. Yeah. So... Uh, one thing led to, oh, and I knew he couldn't be president, uh, not because of the rumored zipper problems or any of this other stuff. He couldn't be president for the most fundamental reason. I mean, I was, there was no question in my mind that he couldn't be president. From, and, and it from, wasn't from it, Arkansas? No, 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 no. The fundamental reason that made it impossible, and I really believe, I mean, I'm not, this is not, this is shtick, but it's not shtick because I knew him. I could not know the President of the United States. There was no way that I would ever know the President of the United States. It was just so obvious to me on an instinctive basis. I had once met the mayor of New York when I was seven, but that was it. So I knew he wouldn't win, but I helped a little bit. And then he, he we were out in Little Rock for uh, an election night. 
So I sort of got involved a little bit, but not really. I mean, we got to do amazing things because we were friends. The Renaissance family, Renaissance weekend family, Phil and, uh, and Linda later, Phil became ambassador to the court of St. James and after he was uh, deputy chief of staff and all these things. But so I got a little bit involved in some of those things. And then in um, 1998, I'm back, it's the winter time, so I'm in Miami, I'm in short pants, I haven't shaved. I'm sitting there, the phone rings. It's not Bill Clinton. It's Richard Sakharides. Um, uh, he'll explain in a second <laughs> who Richard was. Who I, just, who I just saw in the PBS documentary, Cured, about, about, oh, about his father, what exactly. he produced. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, I'm glad you saw it. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> so Richard and I have known each other a long time. And Richard said, Andy. And he said, hey, Richard, how are you doing? He says, Andy, if the President of the United States asked you to be treasurer of the Democratic Party, would you say yes? <laughs> I said, Richard, but, but you, you called me. You're supposed to be calling Jeff. There was a wonderful guy, Jeff Soroff, who uh, would have done a great job, had earned the position. He had done so much stuff, much braver than me. He was fighting for gay rights, you know, uh, when it was really uncomfortable to do it. And I was uh, not that brave. And so Jeff would have been great. And I said, you're not, you should be calling Jeff. He said, no, you don't understand. The president doesn't know Jeff. And if, if you don't do it, you know, it could go to a lovely Native American woman in a wheelchair, or it could go to a this, or give that, but it's not a necessary, you know, just a, a, a regular right. straight person. Uh, yeah, whatever. But, um, uh, but it would be kind of cool for the first time in the history of the United States to have an openly gay officer of one of the two major parties. So I hope you do it, says Richard, who was the liaison to the LGBT community from, from the White House. I said, oh my God, well, I don't know. So not me. I'm a, a, you know, my whole point of being a writer is you don't have to wear a tie and you don't have to be nice to people because you're on the buy side. Basically, they have to be nice to you. You know, they have to pretend to, you know. But let me think about it a little bit. Uh, and I called some of the people I had gotten to know. The outgoing chair uh, and I had played tennis when we were ten and twelve years old at uh, Camp Wigwam, and uh, I found out what it entailed. And it basically, my job was to go to jail if we did something wrong. Otherwise, there's nothing, no specific duties. Oh, other than ask a lot of people for no, money. No, that's not a duty. Really? No, okay. no, no. That's absolutely not a duty. So I, the incoming chair, I had also gotten to know. I said, so if I did this, what would you expect me to do? He said, well, it's funny. I looked in the bylaws. There's nothing really you're supposed to do, but um, if you could, I would really love your help raising money. That would be great. I said, um, so if I did anything, that would be a bonus and I would be outperforming expectations? said, yeah, basically. On that basis, <laughs> on that basis, I like that. That's not a lot of pressure. And I can, because I can succeed if the only thing I have to do is anything. So I said, okay. And of course, it's not a full-time job. I figured I'll do it for two years. Then I'll pass it off to Tammy Baldwin was actually my idea. I figured go boy, girl, boy, girl. And she had just been elected the first uh, openly uh, le open lesbian, uh, I think, in, in history. Is she a senator already? By no, no, no. She was Congress. No, I, I met her uh, at Outgiving, uh, Tim Gill right. stuff, when she was first running for Congress. I've known her all this time and, you know, been proud to support her all this time. She's great. So I figured, boy, girl, boy, girl. Uh, it turned out, A, it didn't work that way. Uh, <laughs> but when my tears were up, I assumed that, you know, Gore would win, who wouldn't want four more years of peace and prosperity. And he did win, by the way, which is a whole other podcast. But it, it became really more important because now, you know, it's more at stake. And so I got someone to take my place. But at the last minute, he and, and I checked with Terry McAuliffe, who's the incoming chair. He said, yeah, that's OK. He's, he's good if he'll, he'll do it. I said, all right, I'm almost sure he'll do it. If he doesn't, I'll do it for another two years, but for another four years, I guess it is. At the last minute, like four days before the election, my friend said, no, he wasn't going to do it. So I was in for another four years. And it just get, it kept getting more and more important uh, because, you know, when I was growing up, the first debate I remember was the Kennedy-Nixon debate. And all they could think to disagree about were two little islands off the coast of what was then called Formosa, Taiwan, called Kimoy and Matsu. And who cares, right? I mean, it was crazy. The only thing that really mattered that was Nixon was sweating and, and Kennedy was handsome and wasn't. So it was Coke versus Pepsi. I mean, people forget, but Nixon, the Republican, 
uh, was the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, and um, and the uh, Earned Income Tax Credit and all kinds of stuff. So it was Coke versus Pepsi. You're saying the difference wasn't that great? No, exactly. They all believed in science and right. the math and truth. Bush v. Gore, pretty much more of a difference. Uh, and each time it's gotten more and more important. People always say, you know, this is the most important election of our lifetimes. And then they usually get embarrassed and say, I know we always say that, but, the, you know, it's true. may not always be true, but it's still true. And the reason it can be true year after year, not only because there are more people involved, the population is so much bigger and all that, but the difference is we have become so much more polarized. And now the difference between Trump, let's say, and Steve Bannon and, and these crazy people on the right, not the traditional Republicans, the Eisenhower Republicans or even the Nixon Republicans. Oh, rockets on it. But uh, yeah, you know, I mean, so many good Republicans. But the difference between these, you know, conspiracy theory, QAnon, crazy people and the Bidens and the, you know, the, the basic Democrats is it's not Coke versus Pepsi, and it's not Coke versus the H's anymore, and it's not even, you know, I mean, now it's it's Coke, Coke versus arsenic or whatever you want to do. So it's gotten more and more important. So I did it for 18 years, and every time I sold somebody on how important it was, I was kind of selling myself. I was sick and tired of it in terms of asking people for money, and you were sick and tired of being asked. And anybody listening you who know, knows me is, you know, they're very glad that there's caller ID because nobody's home when I call anymore. Well, I was, I, I was, <laughs> you ended up mobilizing a group of us to work with you on the annual dinner you do in New York because you used to talk about how some of these other LGTB nonprofits were raising millions. And for some reason, the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, was only getting at the time 250, 350, 500,000. So you ended up actually being a and an athlete ally, a fundraiser, as our guest. And it's a long story, which I won't go into here. But essentially, you prodded me to ask former city council president uh, Chris Quinn uh, to, to, to use her promotion of athlete ally to get people in the audience to give money. And then you stepped up and gave. And then afterwards said, would you be willing to help me organize this event committee so it will have a much more successful gala every year? And it, and effectively, the board of Athlete Ally became your initial committee. Yay. Uh, and I remember <laughs> that was the first year we went over a million. And, and you know, this is a little bit, uh, I don't know, partisan, I guess. I didn't have a wonderful experience with Hillary's committee in 2015. They kind of took over what we were doing. And that alienated a lot of people. Hmm. Uh, so I was really involved with it for three years with you. Yeah. Uh, I'm still very pro de you know, Democratic Party, but sometimes the the organized part of it right. uh, can be off putting. Yeah. Oh look, politics sucks. Yeah. But compared with uh, being shoeless and the coldest winter in history in Valley Forge, right, right. fighting for independence, or being in Vietnam or right. Iraq, the fact that you get all these emails, you have to delete them, and they're so annoying. As sacrifices go, or the fact that you have to, you know, yeah. give one percent of your net worth to right. try to save democracy. Well, you know, I know it only leaves ninety nine percent, which is barely half. You know, well, but you, well, you and I were raised more to give like ten percent of. You know, it's like right. it's really giving back to the things that make us who we are. I mean, we're. Uh, I mean, let's not even start with how precarious democracy is right now and how much we are in the fight of our lives and. Um, I'm an optimist, so hopefully it's going to work out. But this is very the new Adam Schiff book, yeah. uh, Midnight in America: How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and right. How We Still Could. Anybody who doesn't already believe to their core that that title is an appropriate title should read the book. I just read an article last night in the Times um, that basically it's not politics, but it's what underlies our politics, and I don't want to go off on a tangent, but it basically describes how the growing divide between the poor and the wealthy in this country has spurred all of this yep. division. Yep. And yet there's no movement to stop it. And the young people feel hopeless because they look ahead and see no path through life. The elderly can't die financially, can't afford to do the thing at the end of their life that they should. Yeah. And so a lot of people leaving this country are looking for ways to leave. And so until and unless we can ever bring the parties together and find some solution, 
essentially taxes the very wealthy and finds more of a reinvestment in our prospects, in our infrastructure, in our That's future. That's exactly what Biden's, you know, the the, the different, uh, the Build Back Better and the, right. the physical infrastructure and the and almost more important, or equally important, the social infrastructure, that's what it does, basically. The idea, it makes me sick that we're having so much trouble getting it done, but... Um, well, to give hope as opposed to disenchantment. Right? Well, not just hope, but, to, I mean, you're totally right, but uh, but it's hope, but it begins, the, the pendulum, uh, until Ronald Reagan, we had a strong middle class, and he started, uh, and we also had gotten our, uh, over the 35 years since World War II, we had gotten our national debt down from 122% of, NG, of GDP down to 30%, which is where it was in 19... 19- 29 before the depression so it in this uh, between the depression and but mostly world war ii it got up to 122 percent and nobody paid off the debt but the economy kept growing and the deficits weren't too big and so gradually it shrank the national debt as a proportion of the gdp to 30 percent reagan took over and said government's the problem and rich people are being taxed too much and stuff which they were by the way it was uh it was ninety percent was the margin, or actually Kennedy had lowered it to seventy percent, but but uh, Reagan lowered it fifty percent, which in my view is still too high. But then he overshot the mark and got it down to twenty eight percent, which it turned out we started getting these big deficits. He also kind of killed the unions, which didn't help. Right. But he started something that uh, Bush Jr. made much worse in terms of, and then, and then Trump. So uh, it's been a phenomenal time to be a plutocrat, uh, many of whom, by the way, are wonderful people. I know quite a few of these people, and they're good people. They've done tremendous things for the country and for the economy. So a few of them are scoundrels or crooks, but most of these are good people. So this shouldn't be about punishing them or doing anything but celebrating their success. But they've got to share the success, because otherwise you're going to have um, the kind of you have czarists and the noblemen and the serfs, and then there's a Russian revolution. Right. Um, so that's where we are. And what if we did restore tax rates, not all the way to what they were under Kennedy sure. or any of that, but to kind of what they were under Clinton, let's say, not so crazy. We had created 20 million new jobs. A lot of people got rich. People started companies. If we did that and we did the child care uh, tax credit and continued it after this year, We've all, that has pulled 50%, cut child poverty by 50%, that one thing. Well, <laughs> and, and these things move the pendulum back towards giving people a fair shot and a better break and a more decent life. So, yeah, this is all the marbles in the next months or two. If anybody, <laughs> go to, go to andrewtobias.com, and not all the columns that I write, are asking for money or about this stuff. But if you read a few, you're probably going to find one that that uh, has a, a pitch. And if you don't find one, just send me an email. And if you if you want to help, boy, could boy could we use your help in saving the world. Do you want to give your email address for that? Uh, go to andrewtobias.com. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so shifting gears, you know, just to make it clear that you're not all about business, you've had a private life as well. You've been an openly gay man. Um, and you've had a, a long relationship, uh, which unfortunately ended tragically. But I just want to ask you a little bit about what it's been like being gay during this time. Well, this time is a lot of time, and it's <laughs> been great in so many different ways. Um, and basically, all of it's been great. But, uh, you know, I fell madly in love. Finally, I finally, you know, after all that time, when I was 28, and it was so fantastic for like nine months. And then there were so many tears on all three sides, me, the guy that I was in love with and who was in love with me, and then Tom, <laughs> who and that the guy I was in love with was in love with Tom too. And Tom felt bad for me and I felt bad for Tom. So kind of, you could write a book about it. And I kind of did. That was the sequel. Uh, the Best Little Boy in the World Grows Up. But so that was one chapter. Um, there have been other folks, but basically I had a wonderful long-term relationship with a guy named Scott Haller who died of AIDS, and um, he was awesome. And um, so I've written about him also. 
And then you didn't know Scott, I don't think. I did. Oh, you did know Scott? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, Scott's pictures over yeah. there and all that. And then Charles, Charles Nolan, who I'm still wearing the ring, uh, and uh, I'm winning far more of the arguments now, but uh, not all of them. I mean, I <laughs> sometimes I, <laughs> I look uh, upward, not that I believe in that stuff literally, but I look upward and, and, he, and he's saying, honey, you can't lick the plate of a restaurant. I mean, are you crazy? <laughs> it's bad enough you do it at home. You can't do that. Think of it, you know. Um, Charles so, always did have good taste. <laughs> oh, my God. Charles, Charles, uh, uh, we were so different. And so complimentary with a, an E. I mean, I can't draw a straight, a straight line, let alone a circle. I have no uh, fashion sense whatsoever. I'm terrified of women's clothes and all that stuff. But I can spell. I can punctuate, and I'm pretty good at arithmetic. Charles, when he had a surprise party for me, he got this beautiful invitation printed up, and he, he told me afterwards, he said, he was so frustrated, being so angry at what happened, because I had my whole family proofread it. It was an invitation with just one word, surprise, but it was spelled wrong. Are you serious? <laughs> I have a friend in the other room. I can show you after we turn the... So we were so different. Yeah. I was all about being cheap and frugal and writing books about it and, you know, finding ways to, you know, eating expired food, which I still love to do. <laughs> 20 years past expiration date, it's fine. It's yogurt. It's vacuum sealed. It's fine. Yeah. He was, you know, if the roses weren't the right color. Right. Paper plates? Are you crazy? You can't use paper plates. Do you know who we are? You know, yeah, I know. Who we are. <laughs> anyway, so Charles was great. Uh, he died ten and a half years ago. Um, within thirty days, when my mom died, and everybody was saying, "Oh my God, are you okay?" And I was like, and I would say, "Well, I'm actually inappropriately all right." I mean, you're. Thank you for being so concerned, right. but obviously, I wish you. They were both still here, and they were both so wonderful in different ways, but uh, I inherited the happy gene from my mom. And by and large, I just don't, you know, we all obviously... You don't dwell on the negative. You no, know, yeah. I mean, I've, I'm so, I feel so lucky in part to have inherited the happy gene. A lot of this, I think, is chemical, and some people listening have it, and they know what I'm talking about, and some people... I told me to say it's literally a gene or right. say simple, but but you know still a disposition, you know, and, and others who are very often the most wonderful, talented people, um, kind of have the gene my dad had. We call them Debbie, Debbie Downers. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe they're they're just not quite as nuts as I am. Anyway, um, so the last ten years, I built kind of this wonderful life for myself. I'm surrounded by the most Extraordinary, wonderful, mostly young guys. Some guys our age. I'm older than you are, but not that much. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think I, I, Kevin Jennings has a similar, you know, mentoring a lot of young people that they surround themselves with. I'm finding through Bammer the same thing happens to me. Do you think any element of that, do you think it's our own dispositions or some element of it, the time we find ourselves in, in which there is more of a look up to people our age than there was when you and I were coming up? Does that make sense, the question? The question makes sense. I don't, I mean, I guess they're, well, <laughs> big topic. Um, yeah. One one subset is there's one or two percent, or I don't know what the percent, but some young guys actually are more interested in old guys. Right. It totally baffles me, but I have come to know from firsthand experience sure. that, uh, and it's not like, uh, a compromise. I mean, it's like literally at a visceral level. They're, they're from an early age, they just know that they are attracted for some reason. Older so there's that. Right. But but trust me, most of my young friends are, have no interest in getting anywhere right. near a bedroom. What they but it's we have so much fun together, and I learned so much from them. I even learned the expression "okay boomer" from them, <laughs> uh, bammer. But. Um, uh, you know, so I mean, they they keep do you, me young. Do you know what OnlyFans and thirst and thirst traps are? I don't, I don't know thirst. I only fans. Thirsty. Of okay. Th yeah. Uh, for a millennial, if you want attention and you put up a photo with your your tits or your ass or yeah. whatever, oh, that's a thirst that's trap. A thirsty uh, pick, and it's a thirst trap trying to draw people's eyeballs. Ah. Okay. But anyway, I'm, like yeah. you, I learned all these things yeah. from younger people. So, uh, and for their part, you know. Um, as long as you know the safe word and you can shut me up or leave at midnight and go off and do something fun, 
I can be amusing for a while, and uh, we have a, a, a great time. So it's, uh, yeah, and, and mentor, mentee, and right. all that kind of stuff. It's great. So bringing this to a close, how do you think the young man who wrote Best Little Boy would regard the man you've become? Well, when I, I think he would be flabbergasted at how well it worked out. The young man before he came out would have been beyond flabbergasted. It was just inconceivable. So uh, one of my favorite things in the world is a uh, magazine, a story, a big picture of Pete Buttigieg, uh, and, uh, you know, looks great, and he's, you know, giving a speech or whatever, and the headline is, the best little boy in the world runs for president. <laughs> and, you know, he won the first primary in Iowa, and he has a tremendously important job in, a, in the days of infrastructure to be Secretary of Transportation. The idea that we could have gone from, when I wrote the book, it had to be under, at least in my mind, because I was a coward, that it had to be under a pen name. It didn't legally have to be under a pen name, but I wasn't going to. But we've gone from that to go to the point now where much of America, even in Iowa, is fine with this. Uh, not only is gay, he's married. <laughs> you know? And has kids. Now he has kids, but I mean, when he was running. Right. Yeah, you know, uh, and in terms of personally, I never dreamed that after you turn 26, let alone 30, you could actually have anybody attracted to you. Um, you could have a life, but you're not going to have a sex life because how could you possibly? Well, I have great news. <laughs> well, I find the most fitting part is in some way that's a testament to your first book. I mean, it's not direct, but the well, best little boy in the world runs for president. Well, uh, to the extent that I've been able to help a little bit, which yeah. has been, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm having the time of my life. I've never been happier, you know, so. Well, on yeah. behalf of all my listeners who've gotten a chance to learn about you and, and get to know you a little bit today, thank you for everything you've done for not only the LGBT community through your writing and your stewardship, but also for those of us who are aiming to improve the politics in this country and to improving the lot of the people who have less than others. Well, I'm the same. I will turn around and say, uh, you know, take all that and it goes right back to you. You've done the same thing and it's appreciated. Again, thank you, Andy. And it's great to spend time with you again. You bet. The podcast you've been listening to is produced by Mike Balaban and Tom Walker, recorded and researched by Mike Balaban, with editing and music from Henry Lay.